Please be seated. Good morning. My name is Dave Farley. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF. There's a lot of folks in town this morning for Whitworth's graduation. If that's you, welcome this morning. And congrats to all those graduating today. It's a big accomplishment. I'm going to pray once again and ask for God's blessing as uh, we talk about this important but controversial passage. Father, thank you so much for giving us your holy, inspired, life-giving, life-sustaining word. We pray that you would help. Help, Lord. Help, help, help as we seek to understand and apply this text to our lives. Send your spirit now. In Jesus' name, amen. Mike Homer was six foot four, 205 pounds. He ended up playing Division I basketball after high school. I was five foot nine, 160 pounds, and I did not do Division I basketball after I graduated from high school. Mike and I were on the same high school football team. It was a warm fall day, 1995, up at Hartfield on the South Hill in Spokane. And I was supposed to run a route. I was a receiver. Mike was a free safety. I was supposed to run a route where I sprinted 10, down, 10 yards down the field, took a slight right, and looked back at the quarterback to catch the ball. So I began sprinting down the field, and Mike was on defense, and Mike knew somehow exactly what was happening. I don't know how, but he somehow knew exactly what I was doing. He was bigger than me, faster than me, and more athletic than me. So I'm sprinting down the field, and 10 yards in, I look back at the quarterback to look for the ball, and simultaneously, Mike from 20 yards away is sprinting towards me and salivating. Because I'm looking this way, and Mike's coming from this direction. So as I stretch out to catch the ball, Mike is sprinting faster and faster and faster. I'm going faster and faster and faster. And Mike is salivating more and more and more. And as I stretch out like this, Mike lowers his shoulders. And the second my fingertips touch that ball, Mike leaves his feet. And the next thing I knew, I was on my back seeing stars. A cement truck hit a Honda Accord. And I was not the cement truck. Mike and I were on a collision course, and nothing was going to stop Mike from colliding into me full speed. Now, I don't think Jesus Christ ever played football, unfortunately. But he was on a collision course with the world, and nothing was going to stop that collision from happening. Now, why in the world was someone so filled with love on a collision course with the world? Because the world hated Jesus. Listen to the words of John 7, 7. Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world was eventually going to collide with Jesus. And that means if you're a follower with Jesus, eventually the world's going to collide with you. And if the world does not collide with you, the question is, are you really following Jesus? We need to be ready for that collision to happen because Christ promises that it will happen. Now, to help us understand 
why Christ was on a collision course with the world. We need to understand the world's relationship with Jesus. Three things this morning. The world misunderstands Jesus, the world hates Jesus, and the world needs Jesus. First, the world misunderstood Jesus. Well, how did the world specifically misunderstand Jesus? Well, they misunderstood his mission. Look with me at John 7, 1 to 4. After this, roughly six months later in the John chronology from the previous story, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. Now, the Feast of Booths, side note, was a seven-day celebration of God's provision for his people during the wilderness wanderings 1,400 years beforehand. This was one of the most important celebrations on the Jewish calendar. Everyone's going to Israel to celebrate this wonderful occasion. Verse 3a, so his brothers said to him, now, Jesus had biological brothers. These were his real half-brothers. Same mother, different father, which, side note, destroys the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary taught by the Roman Catholic Church. Jesus had brothers, and they're mentioned here in this passage. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world." Now, at this point, Jesus' own biological brothers misunderstand the very nature of his mission because they're acting just like the world. They say to Jesus, Jesus, you have some serious potential. We've seen the miracles you've performed, but the problem is, is you're stuck in this small backwater town. Think Cheney, Washington. Jesus, if you really want to get your name out there, if you want to be well-known, you need to go to Jerusalem and Judea. Think New York, Boston, or L.A. If you go there, you'll be a significant influencer. You'll have millions of followers on Twitter. Leave this place and come with us to the big city. Jesus, once you're in the big city, you can show everybody your stuff, you know, perform some miracles, cast out some demons, provide bread for thousands, heal the sick people, the crowds will eat it up. Plus, the really important people are not here. They're there in Jerusalem. They can craft your image. They can help you. They've got clout. Go, go do some stuff before them, and then you'll become a huge deal. This is the advice of Madison Avenue, not the advice of the kingdom. Christ's brothers are trying to use worldly means to establish a political and worldly kingdom. They're using crass methods to get Christ to promote himself, which is the mentality of the world. And that mentality is in all of us, by the way. They misunderstand Christ's mission. J. Howard Pugh launched the Pugh Charitable Trust with the wealth generated from his family oil business, Sun Oil, now known as Sunoco. Pugh held strong Christian beliefs. 
and he passionately opposed the secularization of many American institutions like Princeton and Harvard University. He was a good friend of Billy Graham, and together they launched several new evangelical institutions like Christianity Today and Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Today, more than 40 years later, the Pew Charitable Trust funds many organizations Pew himself disdained, including Planned Parenthood and many Ivy League schools. What happened? In short, when Pew died, Pew's convictions and values were hijacked by the agenda of the new board. When asked why the Pew Trust no longer supports Gordon-Conwell Seminary, an organization Pew founded, current Pew Charitable Trust trustee president Rebecca Rimmel simply replied, Howard Pugh was a man of strong convictions and his successors on our board are following in his tradition by having strong convictions. What happened? The current board of the Pew Charitable Trust totally misunderstood the mission of its founder. And now they're using his money to fund evil organizations. His mission was hijacked by his followers. And early in Christ's ministry, his own brothers are trying to hijack his mission. They don't understand what he's all about. They want to use worldly means to make a splash and to promote Jesus as this great miracle worker, this sage, and this political leader to free them from the oppression of Rome. They don't get his mission. They want to use worldly means to establish a political kingdom. But what are kingdom means? In the kingdom of God, ironically, the last are first. Matthew 20, 16. Life comes through death, Luke 9, 23. Strength is found in weakness, 2 Corinthians 12, 19. The greatest are the servants, Matthew 20. The poor are rich, Matthew 5, 3. Gain comes through giving, Proverbs eleven twenty four, and the way up is the way down. The world wants the crown before the cross. And Jesus knows in the kingdom of God, the cross always comes before the crown. Christ's path to greatness was through the cross, not through flashy, self-centered, worldly promotion. Christ had a different methodology than the world. And our path to greatness also is through the cross. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you take up your cross Suffer and die to meet the needs of those around you. What does this look like? It looks like humble, lowly service. And even saying that out loud brings conviction to me. Because just like you, I love to promote myself. Try to make myself look good. That's not the way of the kingdom. In the kingdom... Greatness is humble, lowly service. It's the opposite of flashy self-promotion. It's doing the things that no one else wants to do or is willing to do. 
It's hanging out with the people that no one else wants to hang out with because they just talk too much or they're annoying or they have weird social cues. It is seriously considering the needs of your spouse or your roommates or your siblings before your own needs. It may not be your night to do the dishes, but if you are aligning yourself with Christ's mission, you will take up your cross, humble yourself, and say to your sibling, you know what, Silas, William, or Peter, I would be happy. It would bring me joy to do the dishes for you in this moment. Or it may be your favorite shirt, but your sister really wants to wear it. And so you die. Take up your cross and say to your sister, sister, here's my shirt. Wear it for the glory of God. It's going lower and lower and lower and lower. Humbling yourself, admitting you're wrong, giving away your money, giving away your time. That's aligning yourself with Christ's mission. And the world misunderstood Christ's mission. In addition, the world misunderstood Christ's identity, his mission and his identity. Look at John 7, 5. For not even his brothers, his biological brothers, believed in him. At this point, his brothers know that he's a great miracle worker, that he can do great things. They've seen him perform miracles. They know that God is with him, but they still don't believe that he is the divine son of God sent by the Father to atone for the sins of the world. But amazingly, over time, they began to embrace his true identity, which is astonishing. These are Jews who knew that it was blasphemy to worship a man. But post-resurrection, all his brothers bow down to him and worship him. Two of them wrote books of the Bible, James and Jude. And they couldn't say, Jesus, you're not divine, because there was that time when you sassed Mother Mary. Or Jesus, you're not divine because you stole that cookie when you were six. Or Jesus, you're not divine because you criticized your brother James. They couldn't say any of those things. His own brothers eventually believed that he was the divine one and only son of God. And if they believed it, we should believe it because they were right there with him. But at this point in his ministry, they're blinded to his true glory. But eventually, amazingly, post-resurrection, they believe that he's the divine son of God, and they worship him, and they die for him. But initially, they misunderstood him. And people still misunderstand the identity of Jesus. Mormons teach that Jesus was a mortal man who became one of many gods after lots of hard work. Islam teaches that Jesus was a great prophet yet not divine. Thomas Jefferson and Mahatma Gandhi also teach that Jesus was a wise sage or a great moral teacher but not divine. Prince Philip said that Jesus might be described as an underprivileged working class victim of political and religious persecution. Fidel Castro said, 
This one cracks me up. I never saw a contradiction between the ideas that sustain me and the ideas of that symbol, of that extraordinary figure, Jesus Christ. Really? What about you? Do you understand the true identity of Jesus? Nothing matters more in your life. This is the most important question you could ever ask. Who is Jesus really? And am I living like he really is the divine son of God? Now here's the scary thing. Christ's own biological brothers, at this point in John, knew him very well. They spent lots of time with Jesus, yet none of them understood his true identity. Which means that you can spend lots of time with Jesus and in church and with the saints and have no clue who Christ really is. All of us can be deceived. Just like his brothers were deceived. They misunderstood his identity. Before I move on, let me encourage you with this. Jesus Christ was misunderstood by his own family. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a follower of Christ, but your family is not. And they think you're nuts for following Christ. They've abandoned you. They've rejected you. Jesus Christ can relate. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood by your own family. If that describes you, run to Christ for refuge. He can relate. He's been there. He understands. The world misunderstood Jesus, but it gets worse. The world also hates Jesus. First, they misunderstand him, and second, the world hates Jesus. Well, why does the world hate Jesus? Because he exposes our sin. Look with me again at John 7, 6 to 7. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. Now, who is he talking to here? His brothers. And he's saying, the world can't hate you because you're acting just like the world. That's why they can't hate you at this particular point. Verse 7b, but it, the world, hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world hates Jesus, simply put, because Jesus tells the world that they're sinners and that sin deserves judgment. And no one likes to be told that they're sinners. And Jesus' words sound very intolerant to us in 21st century America, don't they? But his words were very, very loving. Several years ago, one of my sons went to the hospital because he was complaining of intense headache pain. So right away, they did an MRI, and to our utter shock, we discovered that our son had a pilocytic astrocytoma brain tumor. That is, he had brain cancer. I'll never, ever forget where I was when the doctor, a close family friend, told me that my son had brain cancer. And that was followed by an eight-hour surgery and then two years of chemotherapy. Now, 
our family friend, the doctor, could have thought, you know, I doubt Dave and his family wants to hear the word brain cancer. So I'm just not going to tell him about the brain cancer because I don't want to offend Dave and his family. Would that be loving? Would that be loving? No. It's loving to expose the problem in order to provide a solution. It is not loving of Christ to not expose our sin. Our sin leads to pain and misery and death and hell, and it dishonors God. So it, is, it would be unloving for Christ to refrain from exposing our sin. But when Christ does that, it deeply offends people. This implies that you and I should also expose sin in others, not self-righteously, not in a spirit of anger, but because we also want to expose the gospel. If we really love people, we'll speak the truth, which will lead to the incredibly good news of the gospel. Even though it's loving to expose sin, the world does not appreciate it. The world hated Christ for exposing sin, and the world's going to hate us for exposing sin. Therefore, you and I must expect persecution. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This verse does not imply that we'll be persecuted every day. Some people will be attracted to Christ through our lifestyles, but others will be repelled. If people are always repelled, you're being obnoxious. If people are never repelled, you're being a coward. I recently heard a story about a New York City cop. He became a Christian in the middle of his career. And his lifestyle changed pretty dramatically. Before he was a Christian, when his partner and him would pull up to a crime scene, they would park their cop car, they would walk to the crime scene, and when they came back, they would often find envelopes of cash on their windshield with notes in the envelope saying, please ignore the activity on the corner of 44th and Park Street Avenue. These envelopes were given by the pimps and the hustlers and the criminals to pay the cops off. And the guy made the point that a lot of his friends, police officers, took that money as tip money and stayed away from those dangerous street corners. But when he became a Christian, he came under tremendous conviction and realized that's wrong. So he began to turn that money into his supervisor. Do you think his friends appreciated that? That exposed the corruption among all of his fellow police officers who were keeping that cash. And he became public enemy number one at his police station. His godly lifestyle was exposing sin in others and those people were not very happy with him. When you and I expose sin with our lifestyles, and our words, people will not be happy with us. Persecution will come. 
And when it does, you must remember the words of Christ in Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, and in the Greek it says, and be exceedingly glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Jesus says, if you're persecuted, you should, re- you should rejoice and be exceedingly glad, because your reward is great in heaven. How great, exceedingly great. Therefore, you and I should never ever fear persecution. It just leads to more reward, more joy. Christ promises us that if we are persecuted, he will bless us. Any persecution suffered for Jesus leads to joy in heaven. Why does the world hate Jesus? He calls out their sin. What does the world's hatred do? It silences the feeble. Look with me at John 7, 8 to 13. Jesus says to his brothers, you go up to the feast. I am not going to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now, at this point, some people see a a contradiction or a problem in verses 8 to 10 because Christ says to his brothers that he's not going to the feast, then he goes to the feast later. So is this a contradiction? Did Christ lie or mislead or change his mind? No. He was not saying, I will never go to the feast. He was simply saying, I'm not going to the feast right now, basically on your terms, for the reasons you want me to go. But he would later go under the Father's terms and under the Father's timing to glorify his Father through the cross. Let's keep reading verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, No one spoke openly of him. All the pressure from the religious leaders eventually silenced the crowd. According to one scholar, they, the Jewish leaders, are now forcing the public to agree with them using the threat of religious and social ostracism as a weapon to get their way. And this tactic... It's becoming increasingly popular in our cancel culture. Say the wrong thing, you'll lose your job. You'll get demoted. You'll lose friends. You'll make enemies. The world wants to silence us from exposing sinful lifestyles, which raises the question, will you and I be silenced? Will we? I sure hope not. But when that temptation comes, and when you think, if I say this or write this or do this, I may lose my job. 
I hope and pray that God gives you and I the grace to speak boldly in love. And that's gonna require supernatural power. And the Spirit of God longs to give us that power when we ask. I constantly pray for my boys. Father, give these boys courage. Because in case you haven't watched the news, things are getting worse, not better in our culture. And 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, it may be illegal to say certain things publicly. So pray with me for courage for myself and our children because courage will be required. Will we be silenced by the leaders? I sure hope not. Even though the world hates Jesus, the world, ironically, desperately needs Jesus. Which brings us to the last point. The world misunderstood Jesus, the world hated Jesus, and third and finally, the world needed Jesus. Well, what does the world need from Jesus? His crucifixion. Back to verse six to eight. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I am not going to this feast, for my time has not yet come. Twice in this passage, Jesus mentions his time. By the way, earlier on in John 2, he says the same thing to his mother. Mother, my time has not yet come. That word time is the word kairos in Greek. It means a particular moment or occasion. What time is he referring to? The time of his death. The reason he came to earth, first and foremost, was to suffer and die on the cross in the place of sinners, in the place of the world, in the place of those who hated him. Ironically, the very ones who hated him needed his death the most to forgive all their hatred. When the world says that Christians are haters, I think, are you serious? We follow a crucified Messiah who suffered and died out of love for his enemies. What other religion or system teaches one to suffer and die for your enemies? Only Christianity. Out of all people, we're the ones who are called to take up our crosses and suffer and die for our enemies if that's required following the example of Jesus. He suffered and died for his enemies. Who are his enemies? In one sense, everyone who sins. And that's all of us this morning. And through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of Christ's enemies can be forgiven of all their sins. Every single sin you've ever committed can be forgiven. And all you have to do is admit that you're a sinner and say, Jesus, would you please come into my life, forgive me, and help me love my enemies. He offers free and full forgiveness and reconciliation to God to all those who humble themselves and admit they need his saving power. But the problem is, so many of us refuse to humble ourselves and admit that we need him. 
But make no mistake, everyone who's ever lived needs his saving power. And all we have to do is repent of our sins and trust him, and he forgives. The brothers wanted Christ to display his glory in Jerusalem through many signs and wonders and miracles. Christ displayed his glory in Jerusalem by suffering and dying on the cross. The cross is the greatest display of God's power and glory in the universe. He would go to Jerusalem, but only based on the Father's timing, not his brother's timing. And when he went, he would suffer and die for the sins of the world and display his glory for everyone who has eyes to see. Have you received his love? Well, back to the fall of 1994. I was in a collision course with Mike Homer at Hartfield. I was sprinting towards him. He was sprinting towards me. We were going faster and faster and faster. And eventually, Mike collided with me and laid me out cold. I did not see him coming. Clearly, he saw me coming. When we collided, I lost. Jesus Christ was on a collision course with the world. He saw the world coming. But he did not step aside to avoid the collision. Instead, he stepped into the collision and he suffered and died on the cross in the place of the ones who hated him. Why? That the world could be forgiven and reconciled to God. Christ overcame the world and all of his enemies with sacrificial love. When the world collides with us, we too must overcome the world with sacrificial love, taking up our crosses, dying to self, forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. Let's pray.